This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Popaganda from Bitch Media, the Tom Hartman program, Democracy Now!, Humorless Queers, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and Activism from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We used to go to stores to buy software in boxes and hardware. And all of a sudden, these companies that I was writing about, like MySpace and Facebook, they weren't selling you anything. You didn't pay them. They were trying to monetize your data. And so I came to this sort of surprising conclusion that there was a different business model in this industry. And of course, we've all sort of learned what that model is, right? If you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. That's Julia Angwin. She's an investigative reporter with ProPublica. And in a talk she gave last year at a big technology conference, she took on this interesting idea. She asked, is privacy becoming a luxury good? As a society, our mainstream ideas about what privacy means are changing. What we think of as privacy is shifting in a huge and often quiet way because of the Internet. We see outbursts about this change all the time. Little small stuff, mostly about how we shape our identities online. You know, like, oh my god, I can't believe my mom is on Facebook and can see photos of me at parties. I don't have any privacy. Or like, it's so weird and gross that people put photos of themselves on first dates online. Don't they have any privacy? Social media makes us shape our lives into very public personas. Everyone has a different approach to what they include in that public image of themselves. And, you know, we're very conscious these days of what we put out as part of our public identity, what we post and share, and what parts of ourselves we don't make so public. But behind those conversations about our public Internet identities is something, something insidious, I think. To talk about what privacy means... Let's go back to 1967. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. In 1967, we had a big national debate over what privacy is. It was a legal debate. There was a Supreme Court case that dealt with the right to privacy. Cats versus the United States. In this case, a guy, last name Katz, was using a public payphone in Los Angeles to call and place illegal gambling bets. This guy, he was a gambler. And the FBI suspected this, and they taped a microphone to the outside of the phone booth and recorded his conversations. Based on those taped calls, he was arrested and convicted of illegal gambling. But he argued that he had a right to privacy on the phone and that having the government tape his calls in the booth was an illegal search. The Supreme Court agreed with him. The government was wrong. He had a reasonable expectation of privacy in that phone booth. Reading about that case now, 40 years later, it feels so quaint. Now there is no phone booth. The phone booth is everywhere. And the government is still listening. So are many, many companies. And it feels like instead of fighting that intrusion, like cats did, we just see it as normal. Like, welp, welcome to the internet. Here's where I should say that I am 28 and I love the internet. For a majority of my life, I've been having conversations online. I like Twitter. I get a lot out of reading my news online. I have fun finding new artists on Tumblr. 
But I feel nervous about the way our concepts of privacy have changed because I don't like who's guiding the conversation. It's not individual people. It's not elected officials even. It's private companies, companies that make money by tracking you online. You know that every website you visit collects data on who you are, and they use that info to target you with stuff that they think you'll want to buy and to modify your view of that site so you'll spend more time on it. And they also sell that info on you to advertisers sometimes. I was interested in seeing how much I'm being tracked. So a week ago, I installed this little web browser app called Ghostery. Ghostery describes itself as an online transparency company. It tracks the trackers. Now every website I go to, a little window pops up with the names of the companies that are requesting my info. So if I type in nytimes.com, this box pops up when the newspaper loads with the names of 11 companies on it. When I go to target.com, a box pops up with 50 companies. Hi guys, how do I look? Let's go back to reporter Julia Angwin's talk at the tech conference last year. Julia has written a couple books, including one about the business model of MySpace and another one called Dragnet Nation, about the ways that both companies and the government track us all online. She points out in her talk some of the scary things that companies do with the data they collect on you. Staples, for example, looks at the IP address and determines your zip code. Based on your zip code, it can tell how close you live to a competitor's store. And then they vary their online pricing based on that location, offering cheaper products to people with lots of options. Credit card company Capital One, when you visit their website, they guess what your education and income are. And then they offer you ads for the credit card that they'll think you want based on that algorithm. Here's how Julia sums it up in her talk. But in reality, when you looked at the data across the nation, you also found that the people getting better prices were whiter and richer. And so we have this emerging world where you might make a choice about your data for a very legitimate reason, but find out that you're kind of coming close to something that we used to call redlining. If you don't want to be tracked, opting out of this is not easy. Reporter Julia Angwin tried. Instead of using Google, she started using a search website called DuckDuckGo. She installed ad blocking software. She signed up for a phone plan under a fake name. All of this came at a cost. So in the end, I wasn't that successful, right? I think maybe I was 50% successful. And I spent an enormous amount of money. When I added it up, it was almost $2,500 for one year. You know, a phone and the cloud and then, you know, my shredder I threw in there and a bunch of things, my password service. So it really was much more expensive than I thought. And I thought, oh, my God, is privacy becoming a luxury good? And is that what we want for this world? And then I thought, you know, it's not even that. It's like a crappy luxury good because I didn't even get it. Right. It's like a fake BMW. Because what her experiment points out is that trying to personally protect your privacy online just doesn't work that well. Not when you're basically trying to undermine the way that websites are designed to work, to make money off of tracking your behavior. When we all know that we're being tracked online, for the most part, we seem really pretty comfortable with it. We joke about how weird it is to have ads follow us around the internet, how it's spooky the way that Google divines what you're interested in. Yeah, it's spooky. It's bigger than spooky. I would argue that being tracked by companies has made us worry less about being tracked by the government. We used to get really upset if the FBI taped a microphone to the side of a phone booth and eavesdropped on one guy 
Now, the government collects data on all of us, and it seems like we shrug it off. Companies like Facebook and Google now set the cultural conversation about what privacy entails. That seems like a bad idea, not just to me, but to a lot of people. And for some people, there's so much more at stake here than the price of a new binder from Staples, or the rate you get on a Capital One credit card. The constant tracking is a civil rights issue. The idea that if you don't do anything illegal online, you don't have anything to worry about, just doesn't hold true for some communities. The upcoming documentary, "The Feeling of Being Watched," takes a look at FBI surveillance in a small town that's ironically named Justice, Illinois. The town has a big Arab American population, and something weird is clearly going on. The film's trailer explains. I grew up in a small town south of Chicago. It was just like any other suburb, except the whole neighborhood was under surveillance. It's just like how you see in the movies, like those pizza vans, you know, that are just sitting staked out in front of your house. A lot of times, it would be just van, plumbing vans, companies that you've never heard of. So that's where they're parking, so the front of the house. And we kept seeing it every day. And one day, my sister Nura, I guess she kind of just got fed up, and she actually approached him in the car and said, "If you're following us, you could, you're more than welcome to come in the house. You know, we're not hiding anything." And he's like, "I'm not following you. I'm following the number behind you." I didn't know about this incident until someone pointed me to the feeling of being watched. I have to wonder, wouldn't this have been major national news a generation ago? We've come a long way from getting upset about taping microphones to phone booths, but maybe we don't talk about privacy as much because surveillance doesn't impact us all equally. While we're all being tracked, only some of us pay the price. There's this thing called the Stingray. This is a brand name. It's the manufacturer's name, and it's a a, a box. They they make a portable version and they make a little larger version that you set up wherever you want to do it. You can do it in in a subway station. You can do it in a mall. You can do it in the middle of town. You can do it in your apartment. And what this thing does. Is it pretends it's a cell tower? So you're walking down the street, and as you're walking down the street or driving down the street, your phone is moving from cell tower to cell tower as your destination changes. And so you come into the area of one of these things, and some of them actually even have the ability to to send out a signal that shuts down other nearby that basically jams other nearby cell towers. So this is the only cell tower that any phone in its range, you know, within a within a few blocks or a few uh, who knows what the range is, any phone within its range is going to lock into this thing. Now these phony cell towers then 
on the, you know, they hook them up to a telephone line and to an internet connection. And so from your phone, it looks like you can make phone calls and you can. And it looks like you can access the internet and you can, although it might be a little slow. But here's the rub. This contraption is, this is basically what's called a man in the middle attack. This contraption, this stingray, and, and there's a whole bunch of other brands as well, allows whoever owns it to listen to every telephone conversation and to, and to, and to, you know, deep packet inspect or inspect in any way it wants all the internet traffic and arguably to even go into the individual phones that are hooked up to it and snatch their metadata, who they called, what their contacts are, what, you know, what they're up to. And the way we learned about this in a big way is this trial. Yeah, you, Tadra McKenzie, who you've probably never heard of. Uh, he, this, this guy and, and two of his buddies, they, they, uh, this, uh, Ellen Nakashima is writing about this in the Washington Post on February 22nd. The headline is Secrecy Around Police Surveillance Equipment Proves a Case's Undoing. And Ellen Nakashima writes, the case against Tadre McKenzie looked like an easy win for prosecutors. He and two buddies robbed a small-time pot dealer of $130 worth of weed using BB guns. Under Florida law, that was robbery with a deadly weapon with a sentence of at least four years in prison. But before trial, his defense team detected investigators' use of a secret surveillance tool. In an unprecedented move, a state judge ordered the police to show the device, a cell tower simulator, sometimes called a stingray, to the attorneys. Rather than show the equipment, the state offered McKenzie a plea bargain. Six months of pro probation. You don't go to jail. We don't want to talk about this machine that we've got. And then they, and then Ellen Nakashima writes, McKenzie's case is emblematic of a growing but hidden use by local law enforcement of sophisticated surveillance technology borrowed from the national security world. The Tallahassee police used the Stingray or a single, de a similar device in more than 250 investigations over a six-year period. The Washington Post notes. Stingray's manufacturer, Harris Corp., has told the FCC that the device is only used in emergencies. But at least 48 state and local law enforcement agencies in 20 states in the District of Columbia have bought these contraptions. In Baltimore, a judge is pushing, uh, again reading from the New Washington Post piece, in Baltimore, a judge is pushing back against the refusal of police officers to answer questions while testifying, presumably about this machine. In Charlotte, following a newspaper investigation, the state's attorney is reviewing whether prosecutors illegally withheld information about this. In Tacoma, Washington, after a separate newspaper investigation, found that judges in almost 200 cases had no idea that they were issuing orders for the stingray. The court set new rules requiring police to disclose the tool's use. I mean, this is, this is something, this is pretty mind-boggling. And by the way, it's not necessarily just police agencies. I, I had talked some months ago about an article that I'd seen here in D.C., in the local D.C. media, about how there are at least 13 of these towers in downtown Washington, D.C. And I believe that there's one over by the White House, because every time I walk within two blocks of the White House, my phone goes totally nuts. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, if I was Secret Service charged with protecting the White House... I would put one of these contraptions in a place and listen into every conversation, listening for somebody to say, okay, get up there with that, you know, whatever, the gun or machine gun or whatever your bomb or whatever you're up to. I mean, you know, it's security. It's the White House. 
but what happens if the guy who's running the machine is, uh, you know, the mafia? Or what if it's just, you know, some, some local hacker who wants to, to steal your stuff? I mean, there's, there's a breathtaking potential for abuse here from these devices, which are being sold all over the country now. Even our cell phones are no longer private. It's, it's really quite astonishing. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Uh, with part two on a new investigation by The Intercept that reveals the National Security Agency and its British counterpart, the GCHQ, hacked into the internal computer network of the largest manufacturer of SIM cards in the world, stealing encryption keys used to protect the privacy of cell phone communications across the globe. The secret operation targeted the Dutch company Gemalto. Its clients include AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, Sprint, and some 450 wireless network providers around the world. It produces 2 billion SIM cards a year. To talk more about the significance of this story, we're joined by Chris Segoyan. He's the principal technologist at the American Civil Liberties Union, a visiting fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society uh, project. The piece is in The Intercept um, that reveals all this, and it's by former Democracy Now! correspondent, Intercept co-founder, Jeremy Scahill. Uh, Chris Segoyan, um, in part two of our discussion, first Quickly summarize uh, what the great SIM heist is. So in this operation, GCHQ, which is Britain's intelligence agency, hacked into this major Dutch supplier of SIM cards. This is a company that provides these microchips to wireless carriers around the world, and these are the, the chips that provide the, the security that's in our phones. They, they secure the communications between our phone and the phone network and our, and our intended to protect our, our calls and text messages from interception by private parties. Should Gemalto be doing? Can they protect the SIM card? I mean, the, the, what's in the story, the anecdotes that are revealed in the story suggest that Gemalto and its wireless carrier partners have uh, at times followed pretty, pretty pathetic security practices, and so it, it didn't seem like... Uh, the GCHU had to work too hard in some cases, but you know that was just for for some of the collection. In, in other cases, it seems like GCHQ uh, GCHQ's hackers targeted and hunted individual engineers and employees. I mean, they were stalking these engineers online in an effort to compromise their email accounts, their Facebook accounts, and then ultimately to compromise their computers as a way to gain access to the inner sanctum of Jamalta's network. That kind of stalking of, of engineers is, is really terrifying, uh, particularly given that you know, we're not talking here uh, about you know, a government uh, you know, stalking or, or targeting a terrorist. These, these engineers are not accused 
of breaking any law. These are law-abiding people who have mortgages and families and husbands and wives, uh, and they just happen to work for companies that these intelligence agencies, you know, think are fair game. Uh, and you know, I, I think this article, building on the Intercepts piece last year about GCHQ's hacking of Belgacom, Belgium's largest phone company is really going to serve as a wake-up call to the entire technical industry because, you know, in essence now it seems clear that any engineer at any company that does anything remotely interesting is now fair game for GCHQ and NSA and their other partners. Um, how do AT&T and Verizon compare to companies like Google and Apple? So the phone companies... Uh, don't do a very good job in securing their communications. The the encryption technology that's built into your phone, the technology that protects your telephone calls and text messages as they go over the air, uh, the encryption was built in the late 80s and early 90s. It was Forms of it were broken in the 1990s by graduate students and we're still using it today. Uh, these carriers, are, are these, these large multi-billion dollar telephone companies are really not that interested in providing a, a secure method of communication. They're certainly not interested in designing or deploying methods of communication that our own governments cannot intercept, let alone other governments. Uh, and, and, you know, for more than a hundred years, the U.S. telephone companies have been happily providing wiretapping assistance to law enforcement and intelligence agencies, we should just we should give up on this idea that AT and T or T-Mobile or, or Verizon are ever going to deliver truly secure communications to their customers. You know, in contrast, you know, it really does seem like Silicon Valley companies are much more interested in providing strong, secure communication services to the extent that their business models permit. And what I mean by that is, you know. At the end of the day, you're not paying Google for the, for their services, and so they they want to read your emails. But a company like Apple, who you know, Apple doesn't make money by by selling you email service. They make money by selling you an expensive phone. And as long as you keep buying the phones, Apple makes lots of money. For companies like that, where their business model and your privacy are, are more aligned, I really do think we can expect that these companies will provide us with with much stronger and much more secure methods of communication particularly given that they're competing in a global market where, you know, German consumers don't want a phone that can be easily spied on by the NSA. And so, you know, these tech companies really are having to up their game. So, Chris Chagoyan, you started in part one of our interview talking about how people can protect themselves. Mm -hmm. um, explain further what people can do. Sure. So, again, the voice and text message services provided by your wireless carrier, if you're just sending a text message through your phone or making a telephone call through your phone, those calls can be intercepted by your own government, by police and intelligence agencies. They can be intercepted by foreign governments who are operating domestically. They can be intercepted by sophisticated criminals and by hackers and by stalkers. You should not expect that those kinds of communication services communication services can deliver real security. On the other hand, there are now a, a number of apps and internet-based services that you can run on your smartphone that will give you much, much more secure communications. So Apple has, has built uh, iMessage into its, into its uh, iPhone product for several years. If you have an iPhone and you're sending a text message to someone else who has an iPhone, it, this is used by default. Those messages are encrypted 
in a strong way. They're sent via Apple system, and it's very, very difficult for governments to intercept those. If you're using WhatsApp, which is a service now owned by Facebook and used by hundreds of millions of people around the world, if you're using WhatsApp on Android, it's encrypted again in a very strong way. And if you uh, have an Android or, or, or iPhone, you can download third-party apps that the best of which are, are called Signal for iOS and Text Secure, T-E-X-T Secure from Android. These are best of breed free applications made by top security researchers and actually subsidized by the State Department and by the U.S. taxpayer, you can download these tools today. You can make encrypted telephone calls. You can send encrypted text messages. You can really up your game and protect your communications. To be clear, if you are if you are a target of, an, of a law enforcement or intelligence agency and they really care about you, they can hack into your phone. Uh, and these tools won't stop that. But you can make it much more difficult. You, you can make it so that they have to work really hard. Uh, and, you know, it's unfortunate that the, the phone companies that AT&T and Verizon haven't warned their customers. They should be telling the public. They haven't. But we can do things right now to make wiretapping much more difficult and much more expensive. Is it possible to use a phone without a SIM card? Uh, no. The SIM card is, is sort of like the driver's license for the phone. The SIM card proves that, that you have a valid account. That's, you know, what lets the phone company know who to send the bill to. So you, you need a SIM card. Uh, you know, think of it this way. When you go to Starbucks, you don't expect Starbucks to provide you with a secure Internet connection. You expect them to provide you with an Internet connection, and then you bring your own security on top. If you're using Gmail or Facebook or Twitter, all of those services build their own security in. They don't rely on the Internet provider to do that for you. By the same token, we should stop relying on the AT&Ts and Verizons of the world to provide security. We should just use them for data. And then we should run secure encrypted communications apps that go over the data portion of the network. We know how to do this. These apps exist. We can secure our communications. And, you know, it's been, it's been delightful. Post Snowden, you know, the, the journalism community is really starting to, to take note of this. And I've now, I now regularly have encrypted telephone calls with, with national security reporters around the world. I send encrypted emails with reporters, with lawyers. Uh, these tools really are getting to be easy to use. And it's just, we just need more people to start using them. So explain again, if you just want to make a phone call, but you don't want mm -hmm. it to be listened to or tracked, how would you do that? How would you encrypt so, a phone call? So if you have an Apple device... You could download, uh, you could, so FaceTime is already installed in your iPhone. It's, it's built by Apple. It's built to the iPhone. If you make a FaceTime audio or video call from your iPhone to someone else's iPhone or iPad, it's encrypted with very strong technology and it would be very, very difficult for a government to intercept. Uh, if you have an, uh, if you don't want to use an Apple, uh, uh, encryption product, there's a fantastic app in the App Store called Signal, S-I-G-N-A-L. It's free, it's open source, it's very, very good. That makes encrypted telephone calls anywhere in the world for free. Even if you're not worried about security, it's actually a way of saving money on your phone bill. And then if you're using Android, there's a great app by the same people who do Signal called Redphone, R-E-D-P-H-O-N-E. Again, it's free. It's supported by the U.S. government. So you're paying for it anyway. You might as well use it. Uh, and that will also let you make free encrypted telephone calls. Uh, these, these tools work, and they make, they make wiretapping much more expensive, which is what we want. We want governments to have to focus their resources on the people that really matter, the real threats. 
but they shouldn't be able to spy on everyone at low cost. I also wanted to ask about another NSA story in the news this week. This new probe that finds the NSA has embedded spying devices deep inside hard drives and computers mm -hmm. around the world. The Russian firm Kaspersky Lab says it uncovered the spyware and personal computers across 30 countries from Iran to Russia, Pakistan, Libya, China, Belgium, Ecuador, and the United States. The targets include government institutions, oil and gas firms, Islamic activists, scholars, and the media. Can you comment on this, Chris Goyen? Sure. So uh, the NSA has a multi-billion dollar budget. They hire some of the best and brightest hackers, and they, they give these really smart people a lot of resources and, and basically tell them that they can do whatever they want. And, you know, it's not surprising that a well-resourced team that is not constrained by the law uh, can, can get up to a lot of really interesting and terrifying things. You know, they've been given a mandate by their superiors to go out and hack and, and get access to every system they can, and, and they're doing that. Um, you know, in one way, as, as someone with a technical background, I'm, I'm impressed with what they've been able to do, but I think, you know, we should all be very scared about, about what the NSA is doing, the capabilities they have, and the extreme lack of, of effective oversight that's taking place. For an agency that is engaged in this degree uh, of highly sophisticated technical compromise of computer systems, the the extent to which policymakers and and uh, agency overseers lack technical competence, I think, should be terrifying. We need to make sure that those in Congress, those in the courts, who are supposed to perform oversight over the NSA, we need to make sure that they have technical understanding or technical advisors and the fact that there's no technical oversight of these agencies I think is, is one of the reasons why they've been able to do as much as they have with as little oversight. Chris, why is the government funding the apps that you're recommending that make it harder to break into eavesdrop on texts or calls? Uh, because they're tools of foreign policy. It's, uh, you know, the U.S. government isn't this one machine with, with one person, you know, dictating all, all of its policies. You have these different agencies squabbling, sometimes doing contradictory things. The U.S. government, the State Department has spent millions of dollars over the last 10 years to fund the creation and the deployment and improvement to secure communications and secure computing tools that were intended to allow activists in China and Iran to communicate, that are intended to allow journalists to do their, do their thing and spread news about democracy without fear of uh, interception and surveillance by maybe, the Chinese and, and other governments. But maybe the U.S. government has a way to break in. Well, you know, it's it's possible that they've discovered flaws, but you know, they have the US government hasn't been writing the software. They've been giving grants to highly respected uh research teams, security researchers and academics and uh, these tools are, are about the best that we have. You know, I, I agree. I think it's a little bit odd that uh you know, the state department's funding this, but um, these tools aren't getting a lot of funding from other places and so as long as the state department's willing to write them checks, I'm happy that the Tor project and, and Whisper Systems and these other organizations are, are cashing them. They are creating great tools and great technology that can really improve our security, and I, I hope that they'll get more money in the future. And, Chris, very quickly, what's the legislation you think needs to be passed, at least in the United States, to protect privacy? I mean, we need so much. We need a technically informed FISA court. We need controls over domestic surveillance, but we also need... 
we need strict oversight and, and legislative controls over what NSA does abroad, which right now are largely regulated under Executive Order 12333. Most of the scary things that NSA does, it doesn't have to go to the FISA court to get approval for, and I think we really need to rein that in. The spies hide out in every corner you can't touch them, though Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. So we usually talk about some really depressing, scary things on this show. That's why you come here to Humorless Queers. But it's not always doom and gloom all the time. Sometimes our country wakes up and at least makes some pathetic attempts to make progress. Um, and, Cade, you recently published a story at the ACLU's page over at Medium.com about three bills that could actually start to fix some of what's wrong with our laws when it comes to the Fed snooping on our emails. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so three bills introduced uh, last week, all last week, aim to basically do the same thing, um, to modernize electronic communications privacy law that was originally passed in 1986. So I'll just give the math pros out there a free shot at my age by telling you that I was three years old in 1986. That was the last time that electronic communications privacy law was updated in this country. Um, and there are three bills in this present Congress that aim to modernize that woefully obsolete statute. So the three bills, like I said, basically do the same thing. One is uh, Senator Leahy's bill. Senator Leahy, Democrat, has been trying to modernize ECPA, which is the acronym for Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986. Leahy's been trying to modernize ECPA for years now, and he's thus far failed. Um, two new, younger uh, House members have gotten in on the act this time. Um, Representative Zoe Lofgren of California, a California Democrat, has introduced a bipartisan bill in the House, uh, along with Ted Poe, a Texas Republican, and Susan Delbean, a Washington Democrat. And their bill is the most exciting in my view because not only would it require a blanket warrant for law enforcement access to not just emails that are older than six months, but also anything stored in the cloud. So that is any of your drop, Dropbox materials, anything you know stored on an Amazon cloud system, uh, all of your emails that are older than six months old that are stored by Gmail, et cetera, et cetera. Not only would it, would, would it require law enforcement to obtain a warrant for that, but it would also require that law enforcement get warrants to track people's physical locations. And those of you who have listened to this show before or read my blog or pay really any amount of attention to surveillance news know that um, police are 
tracking our cell phones all the time using a variety of different uh, kinds of technologies. Stingrays. Not simply by going to the... Yeah, exactly. Not just by going to the phone company to demand cell site location information. That is the information that your phone communicates to cell phone towers and that cell phone companies hold about us. Um, but also, yeah, using those high-tech spooky gear things called stingrays and even the U.S. Marshals Program, which was using those dirt boxes and planes flying above our homes, sucking up huge quantities of cell phone location data. So if Zoe, Lof- Zoe Lofgren has her way and this bill passes, which, you know, to be honest, it probably won't, um, <laughs> they, <laughs> just, you know, full disclosure, it's probably not going anywhere. But if it did, and you should call your, you know, representatives to tell them to support it, because if it did, that bill would basically end the Stingray program. It would end the Dropbox program um, for the simple reason that, as we've discussed before here, it's not possible to conduct a search against one person using those technologies. Uh, the way that they work is that they search everybody in a, in a geographic area, and you can't get a probable cause warrant for that, I don't think. So, it, you know, potentially could be the spell the end for, for that kind of, you know, miniature dragnet location tracking. The other two bills, um, Leahy's bill and a bill that was introduced by uh, two uh, congressmen, Jared Polis, a Democrat in Colorado, and Kevin Yoder, a Kentucky Republican, um, would essentially just modernize the warrant requirement. Now, I want to, for and that's for content, for emails and stuff stored in the cloud. Yoder and Polis's bill is exciting to me because over half of the House co-sponsored it. So we have Leahy and Yoder and Polis who have basically introduced, you know, companion bills in the House and the Senate um, to simply modernize the warrant requirement to deal with content issues. Um, that problem in itself is a really interesting one, and it's something that I think most people in this country don't understand. Because electronic communications privacy law was last updated in 1986 before smartphones existed, before the Internet, for all practical purposes, existed. Um, The way that the statute is written, it grants law enforcement huge authority to spy on um, private communications, not not just metadata, but the actual words that you write in the emails, the content itself. Uh, And that's because... Back then, in 1986, nobody really had storage capacity to keep information like that for longer than six months. So the few people in this country who who used email, um, they would delete their emails almost immediately. And if they didn't delete them, they would store them locally uh, because there wasn't cloud storage like there is today with Google saying, we'll give you however many free megabytes or gigabytes of storage. You can keep your emails here basically forever. We would like you to do that. We would like you to never delete anything. That was a totally foreign concept in 1986. Uh, it was far too expensive. So the way that the law was written basically said any information that people left on the cloud for more than six months was essentially considered abandoned by the federal government. And they said if you have abandoned your emails on some cloud service you know, for longer than six months, it means that you don't care about them, they don't mean anything to you, and the government should be able to access them with, wait for it, a subpoena. That's right, a simple subpoena. And so that's the state of the law today in 2015. Just just to interrupt you, like, can you talk about how hard or easy it is to get a subpoena just in case listeners aren't familiar with that process? Yeah, so subpoenas are, I always say this, the equivalent uh, to a prosecutor as... A, a prescription pad is to a doctor. If you are a prosecutor, you write subpoenas. That's your job. 
No judge sees them in the vast majority of cases. Um, certainly no judge authorizes them. In many places, nobody outside of the prosecutor's office keeps a tally of how many subpoenas are issued or for what kinds of investigations or what the results of those investigations are. It is really a frightening power. Um, and, you know, when, when subpoenas are written as they are in this context under ECPA to obtain content, the content of communications, that is truly frightening. You know, there's a whole separate issue that we've talked about before, which is that prosecutors can also issue subpoenas to obtain metadata. So another way of looking at that is to say, you know, the NSA gets these general warrants, basically, from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to conduct dragnet surveillance on the entire population. Um, but local prosecutors can obtain that same information on, you know, individual people, our phone records, our Internet records, the metadata, without a warrant, without going to a judge. They don't even have to get a court order, even though it's a sort of sham court order that the FISC gives out to the NSA and the FBI. Local prosecutors don't even go through that step. They simply write a subpoena. You know, that's alarming on its face, but, but the question of whether or not prosecutors should be able to write subpoenas to get content it answers itself. Clearly, that's unconstitutional. And courts have found that. So, you know, one of the reasons why even law enforcement at this point, including the Department of Justice, has come around to accepting that the blanket warrant requirement for content in criminal investigations makes sense is because in the absence of uh, action in Congress, we have seen this incredible patchwork of law arising through state courts through uh, circuit courts at the federal level, and through state legislatures. So literally today in the United States, the rights that you have to protect your email from warrantless search, not by the NSA, but by local prosecutors, by FBI agents conducting criminal investigations, depends on where you live. Because if you live in the Sixth Circuit, you have a blanket warrant protection for your email. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in a case called U.S. v. Warshak that obviously this ECPA rule is completely obsolete, that you know the distinction between an email that's been sitting in your Gmail inbox for six months and one that's been sitting in there for five months and 29 days is ridiculous, and that all content should require a warrant, even one piece of it. I'll never know what you find when you open up your letterbox tomorrow. While the risks were significant, Snowden himself has made it clear he feels the rewards have been worth it. You said in your letter to Brazil, I was motivated by a belief that the citizens of the world deserve to understand the system in which they live. My greatest fear was that no one would listen to my warning. Never have I been so glad to have been so wrong. How did that feel? I was initially terrified that this was going to be a three-day story. Everybody was going to forget about it. But when I saw that everybody around the world said, whoa, this is a problem. We have to do something about this. Uh, 
it felt like vindication. Even in America? Even in America. And I think we're seeing something amazing, which is if you ask the American people to make tough decisions, to confront uh, tough issues, to think about hard problems, they'll actually surprise you. Okay, here's the problem. I did ask some Americans, and boy, did it surprise me. I have no idea who Edward Snowden is. You've never heard of Edward Snowden? No. I have no, no idea who Edward Snowden is. I've heard the name. Uh, I just can't picture, think right now exactly yeah. what it is. Well, he's um, he sold some information to people. <laughs> he revealed some information that uh, shouldn't have been revealed. Uh, Edward Snowden revealed a lot of documents through WikiLeaks. Uh, Edward Snowden revealed a bunch of secrets, I guess, or information into Wiki, WikiLeaks. Edward Snowden leaked. Uh, he's in charge of WikiLeaks. I'm in charge of WikiLeaks. Not ideal. I guess on the plus side, you might be able to go home because it seems like no one knows who the f*** you are or what the f*** you do. You can't expect everybody to be uniformly informed. So did you do this to solve a problem? I did this to give the American people a chance to decide for themselves the kind of government they want to have. That is a conversation that I think uh, the American people deserve to decide. Oh, there's no doubt it is a critical conversation, but is it a conversation that we have the capacity to have? Because it's so complicated, we don't fundamentally understand it. It is a challenging conversation. I mean, it's difficult for most people to even conceptualize. The problem is, the Internet is massively complex and so much of it is invisible. Uh, service providers, technicians, engineers, the phone number... Okay, let, 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 let me stop you right there, Edward, because this is the whole problem. Right. This is the whole problem. I just, I glaze over because it's like the IT guy comes into your office and you go, Oh, shit. In fairness... Oh, shit. Don't teach me anything. I don't want to learn. You smell like canned soup. It's a real challenge to figure out how do we communicate things that require sort of years and years of, of technical understanding and compress that into seconds of speech. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to the problem there. Right? But the thing is, everything you did only matters if we have this conversation properly. So let me help you out there. You mentioned in an interview that the NSA was passing around naked photos of people. Yeah, this is something where it's, uh, it's not actually seen as a big deal in the culture of NSA uh, because you see naked pictures all of the time. That terrifies people because when we ask people about that, this is the response you get. The government should not be able to look at dick pictures. If the government was looking at a picture of Gordon's penis, I definitely feel it would be an invasion of my privacy. Uh, yes, if the government was looking at pictures of my penis, that would upset me. They should never, ever, the U.S. government, have a picture of my dick. If my husband sent me a picture of his penis and the government could access it, I, w I would want that program to be shut down. I would want the dick pic program changed. I would also want the dick pic program changed. I think it would be terrific if the program could change. I would want it to be tweaked. I would want it to have have clear and transparent laws that, that we knew about um, and that were communicated to us uh, to understand what they were being used for or why they were being kept. Do you think that program exists? 
I don't. I don't think that program exists at all. <laughs> no. 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 If I had knowledge that the U.S. government had a picture of my dick, I would be very pissed off. Well, the good news is there's no program named the dick pic program. The bad news is they are still collecting everybody's information, including your dick pics. What's the over-under on that last guy having sent a dick pic recently? You don't need to guess. I'll show you. I did. I did take a picture of my dick, and I sent it to a girl recently. But this is the most visible line in the sand for people. Can they see my dick? <laughs> so with that in mind, look inside that fold. That is a picture of my dick. So let's go through each NSA program and explain to me its capabilities in regards to that photograph of my penis. So. 702 surveillance. Can they see my dick? Yes. The uh, FISA Amendments Act of 2008, uh, which Section 702 falls under, uh, allows the bulk collection of internet communications that are one end foreign. Bulk collection. Now we're talking about my dick. <laughs> you get it. It's not what I expected. You get it, though, right? I do. Right, because it's. Yeah, because yeah, anyway. So if you have your email somewhere like Gmail, hosted on a server overseas or transferred overseas or at any time, crosses outside the borders of the United States, your junk ends up in the database. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be sending your dick to a German? Uh, no. Even if you send it to somebody within the United States, your wholly domestic communication between you and your wife can go from New York to London and back and get caught up in the database. Executive Order 1233, uh, dick or no dick? Uh, yes. EO-12333 is what the NSA uses when the other authorities aren't aggressive enough or they're not catching as much as they'd like. For example... Okay, so how, how are they going to see my dick? I'm only concerned about my penis. When you send your junk mm -hmm. uh, through Gmail, for example, yeah. that's stored on Google's servers. Google moves data from data center to data center, invisibly to you without your knowledge, your data could be moved outside the borders of the United States oh, no. temporarily. When your junk was passed by Gmail, the NSA caught a copy of that. PRISM. PRISM is how they pull your junk out of Google with Google's involvement. All of the different PRISM partners, people like Yahoo, Facebook, Google, the government deputizes them to be uh, sort of their little surveillance sheriff. They're a dick sheriff. Correct. Um, upstream. Upstream is how they snatch your junk as it transits the internet. Okay, mystic. If you're describing your junk on the phone, yes. But do they have the content of that junk call or just the duration of it? Uh, they have the content as well, but only for a few countries. If you are on vacation in the Bahamas, yes. And finally, and you need to remind yourself... <laughs> no, I'm just not sure what to do with this. It's, uh, just it's hold, a lot just, of... Just hold on to it. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it is a lot of responsibility. That's the whole point. Should I... No, you should absolutely not. And it's unbelievable that you would do that. Uh, actually, it's entirely believable. Uh, 215 metadata. No. Yeah. But...
Come on, Ed. They can probably tell who you're sharing your junk pictures with because they're seeing who you're texting with, who you're calling. If you called a penis enlargement center at three in the morning and that call lasted 90 minutes. They would have a record of your phone number calling that phone number, which is a penis enlargement center. They would say they don't know it's a penis enlargement center, but of course they can look it up. Edward, if the American people understood this, they would be absolutely horrified. I guess I never thought about putting it in the, the context of your junk. Would a good takeaway from this be, until such time as we've sorted all of this out, don't take pictures of your dick. Just don't do it anymore. No, if, if we do that, if we... Wait, hold on. What you're saying, no? Yeah. You should keep taking pictures of your dick. Yes, you shouldn't change your behavior because a government agency somewhere is doing the wrong thing. If we sacrifice our values because we're afraid, we don't care about those values very much. That is a pretty inspiring answer to the question, hey, why did you just send me a picture of your dick? <laughs> because I love America, that's why. So there you have it, America. All of us should now be equipped to have this vital debate. Because by June 1st, it is imperative we have a rational, adult conversation about whether our safety is worth living in a country of barely regulated, government-sanctioned dick sheriffs. show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked on my website. If you'd like to learn more about the NSA, Edward Snowden, and all that he has revealed, you may want to check out Glenn Greenwald's book, No Place to Hide, Edward Snowden, the NSA, and the U.S. Surveillance State, as Greenwald was actually the first journalist that Snowden reached out to to begin the process of revealing what he knew. It's available on Audible and can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, jailbreak your phone for security. If you own a phone or tablet, you should be able to run whatever software you want on it. It seems like a simple truth, but there are a surprising number of hurdles in the way. Most pressingly, if the manufacturer of that phone or tablet wants to, they can misuse the law to limit your control over the device long after your purchase. But our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation's latest campaign makes clear that the illegality of jailbreaking is a security-prohibiting nuisance. Modifying the software on your phones and tablets can be a way to install security fixes, making data collection more difficult or impossible. You may not personally have the technical savvy to jailbreak your phone, but you should certainly be in favor of allowing others to. The near-term goal would be to allow privacy-minded tech wizard do-gooders to create security solutions that can then be easily used by anyone who wants to with something as simple as flipping a switch on your phone. To allow for that kind of progress on our mobile devices, we need to affirm that jailbreaking is important and not a crime. 
The Take Action tab at EFF has a link to their Jailbreaking is Not a Crime petition, which sends a letter to the Copyright Office and the Librarian of Congress asking them to renew the exemption allowing us to legally modify our mobile devices. Join the more than 20,000 people who have added their names already to preserve the right to protect ourselves. Regaining rights once they're lost, as made clear by the fight to repeal all the provisions of the Patriot Act, can be a nearly impossible battle. Let's do what we can to hang on to the privacy we still have. Also, a quick reminder that EFF's website has a whole set of security tutorials to protect yourself on all your devices and networks. They can help you do everything from selecting good passwords to installing software to learning how to safely use social media. Find that by searching for EFF and Surveillance Self-Defense or by going to ssd.eff.org. And the segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If privacy matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about EFF's jailbreak campaign via social media so that others in your network can add their support. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Well, we end today's show with an explosive new report that reveals the federal government secretly tracked billions of U.S. phone calls years before the 9-11 attacks. It reveals Justice Department and Drug Enforcement Administration collected bulk data for phone calls in as many as 116 countries deemed to have a connection with drug trafficking. The program began in 1992 and served as a blueprint for mass surveillance by the National Security Agency. For more, we go to Washington, D.C. to Brad Heath, the USA Today reporter who broke the story, headlined, U.S. secretly tracked billions of calls for decades. Brad, welcome to Democracy Now! Explain what you found. Sure. The Justice Department announced or revealed, I guess, back in January that it had been gathering up telephone metadata, the same stuff that's on your phone bill for calls to designated foreign countries. And it left a lot of unanswered questions. And what we found in looking at it was that this is a program that was older than I expected and ended up being a lot broader than I expected. You know, I guess it's no surprise that they were looking at Colombia and Mexico, but 116 countries is a pretty expansive list. Uh, and for a long time, they were keeping records of basically all calls from the United States to all of those places as a way at first to try to find drug cartels and their networks in the United States, and then it became a much more expansive thing. The case in which they finally revealed it was uh, was a guy who was charged with trying to export electrical equipment to Iran, so not a drug case at all. Um, and the thing that really surprised me the most was that, you know, when the DOJ and the DEA first said they've been doing this, a lot of people speculated, well, uh, here's another example of kind of war on terror tactics that are being applied to domestic law enforcement. And it's actually the other way around, that this started nine and a half years before September 11th in George H.W. Bush's administration. And this was the blueprint for a lot of what NSA started doing after September 11th.
Uh, hey, Jay. My name is Alex. I'm calling from Montreal, and I think I've got something interesting to add to the uh, definition discussion. I think the terms we use in political discussions are confusing because when we talk about left and right-wing distinctions, we're only talking about half the story. We're talking about economics. On the left, we have societies with more economic equality, and on the right, we have societies with less economic equality. There's a second distinction that needs to be made. Uh, this distinction is the opposition between authoritarianism and libertarianism. Uh, the question is how free people are and how power is organized in a society. On, uh, I know libertarianism has a bit of a negative connotation in America, but it's kind of because it's been co-opted by the neoliberals. What I mean by libertarianism is the removal of hierarchy. The idea that you should not have power over other people unless the power is justified. If the power structure cannot be justified, it ought to be abolished. Uh, an actual anarchist doesn't usually go uh, around saying that uh, we should destroy the state and live in a Hobbesian utopia of every man against every man. Uh, most believe that some power structures are justified and those with utopian notions of stateless societies usually think it's a slow process. Uh, an example of a justified power structure would be a government that has power to prevent corporations from enslaving people. The evil of the state's power structure is trumped by the evil of more intrusive corporate power structure. Anarchists promote a world with uh, fewer power structures. Uh, these structures include uh, white supremacy, uh, the structure of patriarchy, the structure of heteronormativity, and a, a famous anarchist mantra is society without rulers, not society without rules. Uh, authoritarians, on contrast, uh, uh, believe that uh, are those that kind of believe in more power structures. Societies with uh, thriving police states and with bureaucratic institutions that kind of increase racial and economic segregation. Uh, everyone falls somewhere into a spectrum on the libertarian authoritarian axis and everyone's somewhere in a uh, spectrum on the uh, left-right scale. Uh, I think this is kind of an important distinction because it uh, creates more nuance uh, when it comes to left and right wing politics, the anarchist can be just as left wing as a Stalinist without endorsing a police state, and the follower of Ayn Rand can be just as right wing without, uh, as a as a fascist. But their kind of beliefs and ideas are radically different. Uh, having people talk with only two terms, left and right. Uh, makes it easier to paint a picture where there are only two distinct beliefs and that's uh, it, it kind of creates more of an opposition it's something that kind of the right uses for propaganda frequently they'll point to Soviet Russia paint all of the left with one brush and kind of lump it all together if there's more different kind of terms and more different ways of defining uh, these uh, the distinctions it becomes um, easier to create nuance I think this is helpful because I think having more terms makes it easier to think in different ways and uh, I uh, think the extra distinction is helpful I, I guess that's it I, I'm sorry I've rambled uh, have a good one 
Hi, Jay. My name is Sandy, and I'm another that lives inside the Beltway, but is not a Beltway insider. I'm calling regarding the titles left, liberal, and progressive. To me, I hate the word left. I think the left-right thing just divides everyone and um, puts up a wall between us. For me, I don't care whether I'm called a liberal or a progressive. Liberal to me means open-minded, free-thinking, willing to listen to others, accept others' ideas, and try to work towards the best solution. Progressive to me is somebody who's forward-looking, somebody who's trying to move forward, trying to better themselves, better the country. And so, as I said, I don't care whether I'm called liberal, progressive, comfortable with both. Thanks. I love your show. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Chris in Northern Virginia, and uh, I was calling to share my opinion on your recent request for people to give their definition of uh, liberal and conservative, left-wing, right-wing, etc. I used to believe that, you know, a liberal was someone who is willing to liberally spend the public funds for the common good, and a conservative is someone who wants to conserve money as much as possible uh, and only spend it on things that are absolutely necessary. And that is is part of the truth, but it's not really a complete picture, and it certainly doesn't, you know, cover everyone. Uh, my current definition of liberal, conservative, progressive, etc., um, is based on a very interesting book by a guy you might have heard of by the name of Tom Hartman. The book is Cracking the Code. Very interesting read about uh, language and psychology. And in the first chapter, he lays out. The, the difference between liberal and conservative as he sees it, and it's, it's now my whole framework for understanding politics, and that's basically based on the story that we tell about people. So my definition of a liberal is someone who believes in the innate goodness of people, someone who believes that people are, by nature, you know, for the most part, generally good and moral and selfless, and generous and honest and hardworking, etc. Uh, whereas a conservative or a right-wing person, I believe, is someone who believes people are generally immoral and selfish and lazy and evil and conniving and backstabbing and can't be trusted. And, you know, I, I think a liberal believes if you just give people a chance, they're going to do great things. And a conservative believes if you just give people a chance, they're going to lie and cheat and steal and do whatever it takes to get ahead. So I think, you know, liberals like big government and they like, you know, powerful government because government is run by people. Government, it, you know, represents the people. More powerful government means more power to the people. And conservatives dislike big government for the exact same reason, because government is run by people, and they think people can't be trusted. I myself identify as a socialist, and I believe socialism is democracy in every aspect of the economy. Socialism is public sharing of funds, uh, you know, public benefit of our collective wealth. You know, sort of we're all in this together. But there are certainly liberal, centralized government, which is you know communism, and that's not exactly. Democratic. It's not exactly a good form of government, but I think socialism is. To say 
you know, a socialist dictatorship, I believe, therefore, is an oxymoron, because socialism, I think, is democracy. Anyway, I think I have some more stuff to say, but uh, I'll keep it brief. I really appreciate the show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I would like for today to almost certainly be the last day of conversation on this topic of how we label ourselves and others. And, and, you know, I mean, frankly, the, the conversation took a little bit of a turn. Uh, originally, it was it was that sort of progressive versus liberal and what do those words mean to us? And then it took a shift towards liberal versus conservative and is that dichotomy not helpful anyways? And so I, I'm glad that we got these comments in, definitely interesting stuff. And, and there were other interesting comments that, that I didn't have a chance to play. But I want to wrap up by... Uh, clarifying something that at least needs to be clarified to one person, and it's possible that this person is indicative of others. So, so I, I just want to clear that up, and then we'll move on. Uh, Adrian from Albuquerque he called in previously. He had his message played on the show. He basically said something along the lines of, "Like this is a really important conversation. Uh, you know, I'm glad we're sort of analyzing how we uh, how we label ourselves." And he called in again. Not happy at all. He left five messages totaling about an hour and a half. Uh, the longest one was 40 minutes. I listened to them all, but I, I listened on my computer and my player that I can speed up. So I listened at about four times speed. Imagine like Alvin and the Chipmunks sped up even faster. That's how I listened to his messages. And so I basically got the idea of what he was saying. And he was not uh, making the typical liberal versus progressive complaint that makes me loathe this conversation. Usually, he got the impression we were talking about using labels versus not using any labels based on what I had said. So I'll clarify. But basically, uh, his major points were that to not use labels is like colorblindness in race relations, which is something that, you know, I would immediately speak out against. You know, the idea that we should say, oh, you know, we shouldn't worry about racism because we're all the same race. We're the human race, and which totally erases everyone's personal, you know, lived experiences, which I wouldn't do. Uh, he gave an example of a, a black woman who said that she doesn't want to be considered African-American. She only wants to be considered, um, considered American. Like, okay, well, good for you, but that's complicated and problematic for a variety of reasons, and I understand your desire to, to do that, but it doesn't really change how you're perceived by others. And so, and so you know, the, the labels we use are a complicated mixture of how we see ourselves and how other people see us and so on. Uh, he said that, you know, discarding labels, as he was suggesting I was advocating, is not what previous activists fought for, and that you know, avoiding labels is weak and pathetic, and apparently I have no principles, and, you know, I, I somehow suggested that he, who considers himself liberal, that I, it turns out he's not liberal, that I claim to not be the ide ideology that I clearly espouse on the show, so the fact that I was distancing myself from a word that I should clearly support, he found uh, disheartening and dispiriting. 
And so the thing is, I agreed with everything he said, except for the fact that he completely missed my point. So just to clarify, uh, what I said before was that I, I generally don't care about labels because everyone has different, different definitions of these words. And so if I go around shouting that I'm a liberal, which I wouldn't have any problem doing, if I come across someone like Adrian from Albuquerque, who clearly considers himself a liberal, well, then we'd get along perfectly well. But if I met someone else, you know, who has the exact same perspectives on politics and policy and all those things and agrees with me on all of those things, but they consider themselves to be a progressive, well, then we could accidentally end up in an argument about what ideology is best or, or, you know, what set of values is best, even though we share the same fucking values, we just call them something different because the waters have been muddied. So I, I said, I basically just don't care what label I am because it's a waste of time in the event that you meet someone who, you know, if two people have strong opinions and they differ on what the definitions of liberal and progressive are, then they're going to fight about that instead of discussing the issues that actually matter. So the original caller who, who started this conversation was basically, uh, you know, asking us all to begin our conversations by, you know, what he said was asking the other person's terms, asking the, how do, how do you define this? Like, let's get on the same page so that we can work through this. And that's what I agree with. So I'm happy to call myself a liberal. I'm happy to call myself a progressive. I, I just stand steadfastly on the idea that I don't give a fuck which one you call me because whatever you call me doesn't change how I feel. It doesn't change the opinions I hold. So if I, if I go around calling myself one or the other and yet I have to define what it is for each new person I meet and I have to ask them, okay, well, what's your exact definition of liberal and, or what's your exact definition of progressive? Okay. Well, I, to you, I'm this. But to someone else, I would be something else. That's the part I hate, which I try to avoid by simply not giving a shit. Hopefully that clears things up. But that's going to be it for today and hopefully for this entire conversation. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We past all the sad stories and Stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past.
Christmas. 